And now, here's Mark. Election Day 2020 is upon us, and we have actual election results to give you. Almost live-ish, as many of you know, I'm in New Hampshire, and by tradition, three of my neighbouring communities cast all their votes on the stroke of midnight and thereby vie for the title of First in the Nation. I wasn't sure whether they'd be doing that this year, and indeed one of that trio of White Mountain Hamlets has thrown in the towel. Hart's location, with 48 voters, has abandoned its midnight vote because of the COVID. So those four dozen Granite Staters got an early night, and they'll vote like any other old New Hampshire town in daylight hours on Tuesday. Pathetic. That leaves two early voting towns. First up, Dixville Notch, which is basically a company town or company village, the company being the old Balsam's Grand Hotel. It's currently in the hands of developer Les Otten, an alleged lifetime Republican who's gone never Trump, and so the first American to vote on Election Day 2020 has just voted for Joe Biden because, quote, the things that unite us are what makes this country great. In 2016, Dixville Notch voted as follows. Clinton, four. Trump, two. Johnson, that libertarian guy, one. Romney, that whatever guy, one. Uh, They had eight voters four years ago. There are now just five voters remaining. So here's the full Dixville Notch vote. Biden, five. Trump, zip. So the boss, Les Otten, evidently prevailed on his four subordinates to follow his cue. If that 100% Biden vote holds up nationally, the Democrats may not need to steal the election at all. On the other hand, the last presidential candidate to win every vote in Dixville Notch was Richard M. Nixon in 1960, and how'd that work out for him? Here's the other midnight vote from Millsfield, which last time round was a Trump landslide. Trump 16, Clinton 4, Sanders 1. Unlike the photo op vote in Dixville Notch, Millsfield, which is about 10 miles down the road, is more or less a real town. So how's it looking in 2020? Trump 16. Exactly the same as four years ago. Biden, five. Exactly the same as the combined Democrat score last time. Uh, But hang on a minute, you're probably saying there's no electoral college of municipalities, is there? It's the statewide total that counts. So what's that add up to so far? Trump, 16. Biden, 10. So Trump is already outperforming the polls. If he can keep this up all day, he's home and dry. And that's it for Real Election News until roundabout 8pm Eastern Time.
post Millsfield, post Dixville Notch, everything from now until sundown and poll closures is just noise, including the now traditional early afternoon super fake exit polls strategically leaked. So in the absence of anything to report for the rest of the day, why not settle back and... Take a break from the finger gnawing with a stroll down election memory lane. We have the only hit song ever written by an American vice president. We have a president who left us with little more than a song. And we have a poem inspired by, of all things, Grover Cleveland versus James Blaine. And if you're a Republican feeling a little unnerved by campaign 2020... And uh, it's unchanging presidential polls. You will enjoy our account of a fantastic GOP landslide from sea to shining sea. I'm your Yankee Doodle Dandy in a gold Rolls Royce. I want to be elected. That's a rather Trumpian image. The first recorded popular elections for public office were held in 754 BC for the ephors of Sparta. Uh, Athenian democracy came along later. There were seven ephors, the two Spartan kings who were not elected, And then five citizens who were elected for one-year terms at popular assemblies at which all their fellow citizens were eligible to vote. The F4s were term-limited, 12 months and out. The concept lasted for almost a millennium in Sparta until the 2nd century AD, when the Emperor Hadrian is believed to have abolished it. But one could not honestly say that voting for political leaders at that exalted a level caught on in a more general sense. Monarchy is the natural order of things, which is why, as Ben Franklin grasped, the tricky bit about a republic is keeping it. Uh, Franklin didn't live to see how that panned out. He died in 1790, a year after the first inauguration, back when John Adams was proposing that George Washington be addressed as your most benign highness. That would rather have suited Obama, don't you think? Instead, America gave a word to the world, the now standard designation for a non-monarchical head of state, president. And in the American conception, where there is a president, there must also be a presidential election. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. A return to normalcy, an unprecedented Republican landslide, and a big thumbs down to the League of Nations. It's Election Day 1920. A hundred years from today. Warren Harding was born on his grandfather's farm just outside Blooming Grove, Ohio, 
on November 2nd, 1865. And for his 55th birthday, November 2nd, 1920, he has received many happy returns from Maine to Arizona, Maryland to California, sharing him with over 60% of the popular vote and an electoral college sweep of 37 out of 48 states. Senator Harding and his running mate, Calvin Coolidge, have won almost every county in the West outside of Texas and every single county in rock-ribbed Republican New England. And thus, Mr. Harding's elderly father, a retired country doctor, has lived to see his friends, neighbours, countrymen, and for the first time, all country women, give his son the ultimate birthday present and make him the 29th president of these United States. This is the first election since the end of the World War, the first election since the ratification of the 19th Amendment on women's suffrage, and the first election to be broadcast live on the new medium of wireless radio as polling stations closed the first so-called radio station, KDKA in Pittsburgh, made its debut with Leo Rosenberg announcing election results as he got them and bringing them live to an audience listening within a radius of 500 miles. Senator Harding campaigned on a return to normalcy, but there was nothing normal about the scale of his victory. He won 404 electoral votes compared to 127 for Democrat James M. Cox. That breaks the electoral college record set by Theodore Roosevelt in the 1904 Republican landslide. It was almost as bad in the Congress. Those 127 electoral votes are exactly the same as the number of congressmen Mr. Cox's party managed to elect, just 127 against 307 Republican members. In the Senate, the GOP widened its razor-thin majority to 59 seats to 37. At the state level, the story is the same. In Vermont... The birthplace of Calvin Coolidge in Vermont, Senator Harding's margin of victory over Governor Cox, 44,301 votes, sets a new state record, beating the 40,000-vote plurality the late Mr. McKinley had over William Jennings Bryan in the 1896 election. By contrast, the Democrat vice presidential candidate, Franklin D. Roosevelt, could not carry his own town, Hyde Park in New York, which went for Harding and Coolidge by 279 to 194. In New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson's home district in Princeton went for Harding by about 5 to 1. And this election has to be accounted the most thorough repudiation of the Wilson administration and especially of what was supposed to be its greatest legacy, the League of Nations. The nation of America seems to share Mr. Harding's view of global institutions. Nationality is the call of the hearts of liberated people and the dream of those to whom freedom becomes an undying cause. It's the guiding light, the song, the prayer. Can any red-blooded American consent now when we have come to understand its priceless value? 
to merge our nationality into internationality merely because brotherhood and fraternity and fellowship and peace are soothing and appealing terms? Warren Harding in his famous senatorial speech. Just as ago, he made a few remarks on the porch of his home in Ohio after being presented with a birthday gift by the employees of his newspaper, The Marion Star. It was a special printer's rule, engraved on one side with best wishes to Senator Warren G. Harding and on the other with elected President USA, Nov. 2, 1920. Mr. Harding, with tears in his eyes told his employers that his spectacular win was a victory for quote confident Americanism but promised that he will be quote on the square with all the world. Irish Catholics aren't so sure the president-elect has indicated that he views the present revolutionary turmoil in Ireland as a purely internal matter for the government of the United Kingdom. Governor Cox, also of Ohio, has yet to make a formal concession to his neighbour, Mr Harding, but the newspaper he owns, the Dayton News, has thrown in the towel. Headline, Republican landslide, Harding wins. With what is reported to be up to 10 million women voting for the first time, male voters have abandoned the Democrat Party in droves, even in southern border states. In 1905, Alice Robertson became the first female postmaster of a Class A post office in the United States, that of Muskogee, Oklahoma. Fifteen years later, she is the first woman to be elected to Congress since the passage of the 19th Amendment, and the first woman ever to defeat a male incumbent Democrat Congressman William Hastings. Miss Robertson was born to Christian missionaries in the Creek Nation on Indian Territory 66 years ago. She is opposed to government funding for maternity and childcare and has the backing of the Daughters of the American Revolution. On the other hand, the Bronx has elected its first female socialist to the New York State Legislature, Marion Lang, who defeated the fusionist candidate William Lyman. If you're a woman, it was a grand day, not so much if you're a Japanese resident of California. Early returns suggest the anti-alien land law will win big. Uh, there are currently 1,765 yeas to 565 nays. The new law will restrict non-Americans' rights to own or lease property, especially agricultural land. Look for the silver lining, no matter how hard it may be to find, for Mr Cox's party. The Democrats have been shut out of the West, the Southwest, the Midwest, the Northeast, and reduced to a last redoubt in their longtime bastion of the core slave state South. In Georgia, about 75 Negro women succeeded in voting in Atlanta's 6th Ward, 
But the party bosses say they've had those votes thrown out. In Florida, in the weeks before the big day, Mose Norman and Julie Perry, two prosperous black landowners in Ocoee, Florida, had been leading a big voter registration drive for the Republicans and paying the so-called poll tax for those Negroes who could not afford to pay it themselves. Determined to preserve Florida as a one-party Democrat stronghold, the Ku Klux Klan marched in full regalia through the streets of Jacksonville, Orlando and Dayton and bragged that, quote, not a single Negro would be permitted to vote. Just hours ago, after Mose Norman made repeated visits to polling stations to attempt to exercise his right to vote, this evening, Colonel Sam Salisbury, the former Orlando police chief, decided to lead the mob to, quote, find and punish Mose Norman. They found him at the home of Julie Perry, where a crowd 100 strong attempted to enter. Two white men were shot dead at the back door and during a lull in which the lynch mob called in reinforcements from neighbouring towns, an injured Mr Perry was taken to the hospital to have his wounds treated. He was seized by the mob and lynched and his body is presently hanging from a telephone post beside the highway. Reports indicate that the additional forces Uh, ordered up by Colonel Salisbury, then set about raising the coloured neighbourhood to the ground in an all-night battle. At least 20 buildings have been burned, including every Negro church, every Negro school and every Negro rooming house. And most of the coloured population has been forced to flee deep into the surrounding orange groves and swamps. In a town with about 500 Negroes, some three dozen are said to have been killed in this terrible Election Day massacre. A mother and her pregnant daughter are among those burned alive. A black carpenter has been beaten and castrated. The bloodbath on a day to revere the peaceful settlement of political differences has shocked even some Democrats. By contrast, in Illinois, the triumphalism and gloating has remained non-violent and indeed rather jolly. Republicans swept every county in the land of Lincoln and are still celebrating at City Hall in Chicago, headquarters of Mayor Big Bill Thompson, who now bestrides town, county and state as a political colossus. The roof is off, roared his honour as the first returns began coming in. City Hall elevators could not handle the crowds as GOP routers swept up five flights of stairs and packed the corridors. We had them with their clothes on, crowed Big Bill. Put on a big party, let the jazz band play. And that's the State of the Nation. Election Day, 1920. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Election Day, November 1884. Grover Cleveland versus James Blaine. Cleveland won. Blaine 
Chester Arthur's Secretary of State lost, and neither major party nominated a Secretary of State for another 132 years until Hillary Rodham Clinton, who also lost, and with a slightly smaller vote share than Mr Blaine, which isn't surprising. James Blaine was known as the magnetic man because he was very charismatic, not a charge anyone has ever laid against Mrs Clinton. November 1884 was regarded as a dirty campaign. Nevertheless, Walt Whitman was moved to write a poem called Election Day, November 1884. I've been off Whitman ever since uh, Monica a couple of decades back. As you may remember, President Clinton had a cheesy if remarkably effective habit of giving copies of Whitman's Leaves of Grass to women with whom he was uh, intimate or wished to be intimate. Uh, That must have been a hell of a bulk order now, I think of it. Pity dear old Walt was out of copyright by then. Whitman, I think, would not have been impressed by Bill Clinton as he was not impressed by many of the presidents of his lifetime. Of Franklin Pierce, he said, quote, The president eats dirt and excrement for his daily meals, likes it and tries to force it on the states. Benjamin Harrison, said Whitman, was, quote, The scallywag who was and is... The bleep-ass, him! But so what? As the poet says in this work, the power in an election day lies not in the man chosen, whether he be Franklin Pierce or Abraham Lincoln, but in the act of choosing by good or ill humanity. By Walt Whitman, a poem for election day, November 1884. If I should need to name, O Western world, your powerfulest scene and show, t'would not be you, Niagara, nor you, ye limitless prairies, nor your huge rifts of canyons, Colorado, nor you, Yosemite, nor Yellowstone, with all its spasmic geyser loops ascending to the skies, appearing and disappearing, nor Oregon's white cones, nor Huron's belt of mighty lakes, nor Mississippi's stream. This seething hemisphere's humanity, as now I'd name, the still small voice vibrating, America's choosing day, the heart of it not in the chosen, the act itself the main, the quadrennial choosing, the stretch of north and south aroused, seaboard and inland, Texas to Maine, the prairie states, Vermont, Virginia, California, the final ballot shower from east to west, the paradox and conflict, the countless snowflakes falling, a swordless conflict, Yet more than all Rome's wars of old or modern Napoleon's, the peaceful choice of all, or good or ill humanity, welcoming the darker rods, the dross, foams and ferments the wine. It serves to purify, while the heart pants life glows. These stormy gusts and winds waft precious ships, swelled Washington's, Jefferson's, Lincoln's sails.
A poem from me to you this election day by Walt Whitman. A pean to the vote. The votes, all the votes, the countless snowflakes falling from east to west. And no, he doesn't mean snowflakes in the sense in which the word is used today, uh, as we shall see when the micro-triggering or macro-triggering starts in a few hours. The countless snowflakes of ballots, votes, falling from east to west, than are nevertheless more than the wars of ancient empires. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the most senior political contribution to the American songbook and the only hit song to be composed by a member of a winning presidential ticket. Many a tear has to fall but it's all in the game All in the wonderful game That we know as love You have words And your future's looking thin But these things Your hearts can rise A song so popular it's been in and out of the hit parade pretty much every few years for seven decades. A song so portable. It's been recorded by Bing Crosby, Van Morrison, Dinah Shaw, UB40, Liberace, Barry White, Merle Haggard, Elton, John Lawrence, Welk, Donnie and Marie Osmond, Louis Armstrong, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Sammy Davis Jr., Phoebe Snow, Isaac Hayes, the Gay Lads. And so versatile a song that I thought we'd start with Tommy Edwards' semi-rock-and-rollish 1958 hit remake of his own original pre-rock 1951 hit version of it. Uh, the auto remake got to number one in both Britain and America in the Eisenhower era, which isn't bad for a tune from the Taft era. The man who composed that music was Charles Gates Dawes, a one-hit composer better known as Calvin Coolidge's vice president. Uh, well, OK, not exactly better known, but in the pantheon of Elbridge Jerry, John C. Breckenridge, Thomas R. Marshall and the rest of them, it's all in the game, can reasonably claim to be the most enduring vice presidential legacy of all. Uh, Mr. Dawes was born in Marietta, Ohio in 1865 into a distinguished family. His father was the great Civil War general, Rufus Dawes, and his great-great-grandfather was the Revolutionary War hero, William Dawes, one of the two men who rode from Boston to Lexington to warn John Hancock and Samuel Adams that the British were a-coming on the night of April 18th, 1775, although it's the other midnight rider, Paul Revere, 
uh, to whom posterity has accorded all but sole credit, mainly because uh, Longfellow thought the name Revere more poetic than Dawes. A century later, William Dawes' great-great-grandson Charles enjoyed a quiet childhood in Marietta, decided to become a lawyer and made his name in Lincoln, Nebraska as the people's advocate attacking the unfair freight rates levied by the railroad companies. By the 1890s, he'd uh, gone into the utilities business, president of the Lacrosse Gaslight Company in Wisconsin and the Northwestern Gaslight and Coke Company in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, And at that point, politics beckoned. Um, In the 1896 election, Dawes was snapped up by Mark Hanna, the Karl Rove of his day, and put in charge of the Republican campaign in the western states. And after duly delivering victory to McKinley, he was offered a post in the cabinet, but turned it down and instead became controller of the currency. And if you recall the panic of 1893, as who does not... Uh, You'll know that then, uh, as more recently, there were a lot of failing banks around. And instead of showering them with a three-quarter of a trillion dollar too-big-to-fail bailout, Dawes managed actually to squeeze $25 out of the collapsed banks and reformed a banking practice to prevent it happening again. Uh, After a failed Senate run in 1902... He returned to business and banking and became president of the Central Trust Company of Illinois. And if all that makes him sound a bit of a dry old stick, not so, not so. Charles Dawes was a self-taught pianist and flautist. And in 1911, he wrote a melody in A major that he called with a banker's imagination, Melody in A Major. just a tune that I got in my head, recalled Dawes, so I set it down all in one session at the piano in the drawing room at his lakeside home in Evanston. The muse had descended a handful of times over the years, but this time he played it for a friend, the violinist Francis Macmillan, and unbeknownst to the composer, uh, Macmillan took it to a music publisher in Chicago. No one told me, said Dawes. I was walking down State Street and came to a music shop. I saw a poster-sized picture of myself, my name plastered all over the window in large letters, uh, which certainly never happened after he became vice president. The tune was a bona fide hit, and the banker developed a taste for somewhat heavy-handed self-deprecation. I know that I will be the target of my punster friends, he said. They will say that if all the notes in my bank are as bad as my musical ones, they are not worth the paper they were written on. Well, in music as in banking, it's not so much the notes as what you do with them. And what Dawes did in his little melody is very appealing. The superstar violinist of his day, Fritz Kreisler, took it up as his regular uncle.
It's not just a popular concert lollipop, it's good for your health. When Dr. W.E. Dentinger of Riverside, Connecticut, unveiled his thesis on the therapeutic powers of music, uh, Dawes' melody was conscripted to lead the charge. Play it to cows and they'll give more milk. Uh, Dentinger said. In a talk at the Hotel Astor, the doctor instructed the ladies in his audience to lie back and close their eyes while an offstage pianist played Charles Dawes's greatest hit. With proper care, diet, sanitation and music, we can all live to be 150 years old, said Dr. Dentinger. By this time, the composer himself was getting sick of the tune. The intervening years had been busy ones. Uh, during the Great War, he was the general purchasing agent of the American Expeditionary Force. Um, a general purchasing agent isn't exactly the same as a regular general, but uh, nevertheless, Dawes brought a swagger to the task. And afterwards, uh, Congress held hearings on war profiteering and so summoned to prostrate himself before a bunch of hacks for whom he had little regard, he roared, Hell and Mariah, we weren't trying to keep a set of books over there, we were trying to win a war. Thereafter, he was known as General Helen Mariah Dawes and the line made him a rising star in the GOP. Uh, he served as Harding's director of the budget, devised the Dawes plan on German war reparations and shared the 1925 Nobel Peace Prize with the British Foreign Secretary Sir Austin Chamberlain. Campaigning in 1924 as Calvin Coolidge's running mate, he was a colourful fellow, partial to strange collars and an upside-down pipe and prone to outbursts of almost Biden-esque incoherence. But the crowds liked him and everywhere he went across the land, from teeming metropolis to small town to railroad halt, as his biographer would write, his melody in A major was being manhandled by bands of every description. He was elected on November 5th, 1924, and can stake a persuasive claim to being the most obnoxious vice president in history. Even before they took office, he sent a rude letter to Coolidge saying he wouldn't be showing up to cabinet meetings. On the day of their inauguration, he gave an address to the Senate so spectacularly offensive it overshadows the president's speech that followed. Dawes insulted the Senate, the senators and all their doings and good for him. By 1928, when the 30th president announced his decision not to run again, uh, he and his vice president so loathed each other that Coolidge let it be known to the party that he would regard it as a personal affront if they nominated Dawes to succeed him. Uh, so his Veep uh, left for London and a tour as ambassador to the court of St. James's, in which capacity he annoyed King George V by declining to wear knee breeches uh, and he complained about having to introduce American debutants at the palace. How odd that a master of such world-class orneriness should be best known as the composer of a beguilingly romantic tune. Dawes' melody faded a little in the 30s, but three decades after its first success, it was still seductive enough uh, for Jimmy Dorsey to get someone to rustle up a lyric. Love. 
the blue shadows fall While softly the night birds call In the moonlight glow Come the scenes of long ago Once again you are my all in all. That's a very dull lyric, but in fairness, the tune isn't really organised as a pop tune per se. At which point enter Carl Sigmund. Uh, you don't know his name? Well, he was a versatile lyric writer and he wrote pretty much everything. Uh, Pennsylvania 65,000 for Glenn Miller, Crazy He Calls Me for Billie Holiday, Ebb Tide, Arrivederci, Roma, Civilization, that's uh, Bongo, 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 I Don't Want to Leave the Congo, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Dance Ballerina, Dance, What Now, My Love, Answer Me, Oh, My Love. Where Do I Begin? The theme from Love Story. He wrote ballads, novelty songs, foreign translations, and, of course, what I like to think of as my own personal Christmas song, A Marshmallow World. And so four decades after an Illinois banker sat down and wrote a melody called Melody, Carl Sigmund organised the themes of that melody into pop song form and came up with a hit title. Many a tear has to fall But it's all in the game All in the wonderful game That we know as love You have words with him And your future's looking dim But these things your heart can rise above That's my favourite version from those early years, Nat King Cole. After Tommy Edwards' semi-rockish remake, a tune from 1911 somehow got embraced as an authentic R&B ballad and the pop crowd never left it alone. In Britain, Cliff Richard got to number two with it in the 60s and the Four Tops put it back in the top five in the 70s. your heart will Your heart will fly away. It's just lovely. Tune itself seems to fly away under the words. Here's a guy who really loves the song. He sung it for four decades and wrung so much juice out of it that the rock critic Dave Marsh listed his interpretation as one of the indispensable 1001 rock singles of all time, Van Morrison. Once in a while, he won't call, he won't call. But I heard you, I saw him again. Soon he 
soon you will be there with a small, a small bouquet. He will. And you kiss your lips. And caress you. And just like that, touch you. Yeah. And your heart will. Yeah. What would Charles Storrs have made of Van Morrison? Or Isaac Hayes or Engelbert Humperdinck or UB40? He never heard any of them. He never heard Carl Sigmund's words. He died at the age of 85 in April 1951, six months before Tommy Edwards' first version made the hit parade and Melody in A Major began its new life as it's all in the game. Perhaps the lyric, would have tickled his fancy, for by then he was mighty sick of the tune. General Sherman, he said, with justifiable profanity, once expressed his detestation of the tune marching through Georgia, to which he was compelled to listen whenever he appeared anywhere. I sympathise with his feeling when I listen to this piece of mine over and over. If it had not been fairly good music, I should have been subjected to unlimited ridicule. It is indeed fairly good music. Uh, and so I'm occasionally asked when I mention Dawes' best-known work whether he wrote anything else. Uh, why certainly? He wrote The Banking System of the United States and its Relation to the Money and Business of the United States. Snappy title. If I hum a few bars, maybe you can play it. So yes, plenty of other writing, books on finance and war reparations and the federal budget but nothing you'd want to hear Engelbert Humperdinck say. And he'll kiss your lips And caress your waiting fingertips And your heart will fly away On the original sheet music, the credit read words by Carl Sigmund and music by General Charles G. Presumably, Vice President Charles G. Dawes was felt to be less commercial. Nevertheless, this remains the only transatlantic number one hit to be composed by a man on a winning presidential ticket. Mark Stein's Last Call. At the end of yet another two-year presidential campaign season that sucks so much time and energy away from things that actually matter, as the Chinese and other strategic rivals well understand, it's worth recalling the days when presidential candidates did not actively campaign. It was regarded as unseemly so to do because it was thought the office should seek the man rather than vice versa. The candidate who broke that tradition was William Henry Harrison in 1840. He was a general and a war hero, whether fighting the Indians or the British in the War of 1812. And his most famous battle 
gave him the nickname that stuck, Old Tippecanoe. In 1840, he ran against the incumbent, Martin Van Buren, and he ran hard, holding carnival-like rallies, giving speeches. And he won the first Whig Party candidate to take the presidency. Uh, It was a raucous, rowdy and brilliant campaign for office, followed by no office at all. William Henry Harrison was the first Whig in the White House, the last president to be born a British subject, the president with the greatest number of grandchildren while in office, 25. The first head of state anywhere on earth to be photographed. And no one remembers any of that because insofar as they remember him at all, it is because he was the first president to die in office and after only a month. For most of the last, getting on for two centuries now, it was told as a cautionary tale. Inauguration Day, March 4th, 1841, was cold and wet, but he shooed away the closed carriage and insisted on riding on horseback to show that even at 68, he was still tough old Tippecanoe. He wore neither hat, overcoat, nor gloves, and delivered a speech that lasted two chilly hours. Three weeks later, he took to his bed with flu-like symptoms and died on April the 4th, exactly a month after taking the oath of office. These days, when historians compile their lists of the best and worst presidents of all time, they don't even bother, including poor old Harrison. He had time to be neither a good nor bad president, notwithstanding his terrific campaign, which included the most famous and enduring campaign slogan and potent campaign song, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, as in his vice president and successor, John Tyler. Uh, That single-handedly established the power of a good campaign song in presidential politics, so good that in the 21st century it was revived by the rock band They Might Be Giants. Like the rush of mighty waters, 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 onward it will go. As John Flansberg of They Might Be Giants likes to say, it's the rock around the clock of presidential campaign songs, and it surely outlived the man it celebrates, old Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison. Did he really die because he gave too long an inaugural address on a cold and bitterly rainy day? Five or so years back in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, Jane McHugh and Philip Makoviak posited an alternative thesis that President Harrison died not of pneumonia but of enteric fever, typhoid fever. Uh, Washington, D.C., in 1841, had no sewer system and the White House water supply was just seven blocks downstream from a depository for so-called night soil, a euphemism for a great stagnant marsh of human excrement and thus a breeding ground for two deadly bacteria, Salmonella typhi and Paratyphi, both of which have a devastating impact on the gastrointestinal system in ways reflected in contemporary accounts of Harrison's condition and rapid decline. 
After William Henry Harrison came President Tyler and then James K. Polk. Polk also came down with severe gastroenteritis, appeared to rally, but was dead three months after leaving the White House, supposedly of cholera. Polk's successor, America's 12th president, Zachary Taylor, also developed severe gastroenteritis in office and died 16 months into his term. As my old friend Andrew Breitbart liked to say, politics is downstream from culture. In Washington, two centuries ago, politics was literally downstream from a swamp of human excrement, a swamp that nobody thought to drain. So much of our public discourse is now metaphorical that it helps sometimes to remember when these expressions were not merely so, especially in the age of COVID, when, as in almost all public health crises, the most effective defence is basic hygiene. The swamp likely killed three American presidents in very rapid succession. But spare a thought for the first. William Henry Harrison elected to office but denied it by fate. That's politics. Many a tear has to fall, but it's all in the game. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.